0: If you've been with us in the month of January, uh, you know that we have been walking through this series that we've entitled uh, Learn, Love, Live, and we've been talking about those things that are really core values for us here at Mount Hope, like we do often uh, in January. We take January to really go back and talk about, all right, what are the core values? Why are we here? What do we believe in? What do we want to be doing. And so this morning we'll conclude that series. We talked about the idea of, of learn a couple weeks ago that we are here to learn about God primarily through his word. Last week we talked about love and we said that we are here to learn what it means to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. We talked about that last week. And so this week we answer the question. Knowing uh, that we're supposed to be learning about who God is and knowing that we're supposed to love God, God, how is that supposed to impact the way in which we live? And that's the thing that we'll be talking about this morning. In a couple of minutes, we're going to be in James chapter 2, so if you want to go ahead and, and flip open and look ahead, there's some Bibles in the chairs in front of you in the, in the pews that you can grab, otherwise the words will be up here on the screen, but just if you want to get a head start, we'll be in James chapter 2, so you could take a look there. How many of you are like me? How many of you are like me? It bothers you. There's something that bothers you when what people say doesn't match up with what they do. Is anyone else like me here? Does that bother you? When people say that they believe something or say that they feel strongly about something, and then you find out later or you see through their actions that their actions say something different. There's something about that that bothers me. I'm, I'm sure that it bothers you. It really bothers all of us. In fact, I feel like we live in a culture that more and more cares about things being authentic and cares about people matching up what they believe with what they do. That seems to be a big deal for us more and more. In fact, there uh, is a phrase that sometimes people will use. And when we hear that phrase, it's a phrase that really bothers us, and even when people kind of joke around with this phrase, it's something that there's something about it that doesn't sit well with us, something about it that we really don't uh, like, and that is the phrase that comes up when people tell us to do something that they're not willing to do themselves. When we find ourselves in that situation and we call people out on it, sometimes they'll look back at us and they'll say, listen, just do what I say, not as I, what, do, right, Do as I say, not as I do. And there's something about that phrase, even when people use it jokingly, that don't really, it doesn't really sit well with us. We don't like it when people tell us to do things that they're not willing to do themselves. You know, you remember maybe getting your driver's license. And for 16 years, 18 years, whatever the, the rules were when you got your license, you watched your parents break the speed limit. You sat in the back seat and you watched them go a little bit faster than the speed limit. Then all of a sudden when you got your driver's license, they would sit in the front seat. And when you went 26 and a 25, all of a sudden it was a huge deal. And you thought to yourself, wait, I've been watching you for the last 16, 18 years. And now why is it a big deal when I do it, but it's not a big deal when you do it? Or maybe you've been in a class and, and the teacher or the professor has required that a big project or paper is done on a specific day. And so you pull an all-nighter and you stay up all night getting that project done. You turn it in on time and someone in the class raises their hand and asks the question, so when can we expect to get our grade? And the teacher, the professor says something like, when I have time. And you think to yourself, why is it that I have to get this thing in on a certain date but there's no accountability the other way? Why aren't these things matching up? Or maybe you have a boss at work. And your boss is very particular when it comes to reports and times that things are due or the way a time card is filled out. But you know that when it comes to how they do their work, that they don't require themselves to be as meticulous as they require you to be. And there's something about that that just bothers us. It just gets to us. We want people to be consistent, don't we? We want what people do to match up with what they say. And if someone tells us they believe something then what we want is to be able to look at their life and how they live and see a correlation between what they say they believe, the standard they would hold maybe us to, and what they do themselves. That's just how we feel. Well, there was a guy in the Bible named James who felt the exact same way that we do. He had the exact same feeling. All James wanted was for people who said that they believed something, said that they followed something, said they had faith in something. All James wanted was for what they did, their actions, to match up with what they said that they believed. And so uh, James, he he took the time to write to a group of people who he felt like their actions didn't match up with what they said they believed. And this morning we're going to look at some of the the words that James wrote. James' words are uh, very appropriately in the book of James. And we're going to look in the book of James, chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 14. And right in verse 14, James asks a couple of questions. And these questions are going to frame uh, what we're going to think about for the next few minutes together. James is writing to a, a group of Christians, a church... And this is what he says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That's the question that James asks. And James is just like us. James has encountered a group of people who say that they believe in God, say that they follow Jesus, but the life that they were living did not bear that out. The actions that they did on a daily basis didn't match up with the fact that they said they believed in God and that they followed Jesus. In fact, this was a group of people who said to themselves, You know, belief is enough. Just the fact that we believe, just the fact that we say that we believe, just the fact that we sing certain songs or, or read certain books, that is enough uh, for us to say. And James is saying to them, It's not. There should be consistency. James is just like us, it bothers him, bothers him. That people would say they believe in something and then not have their actions match up with what they say they believe. I want to share with you this morning two stories. And both of these stories are found in the Bible and both of them happened a long time before James was writing. In fact, this first story happened thousands of years before James uh, wrote his book. The first story is about a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Maybe you've heard of Abraham and Sarah before. Maybe you're really familiar with the story that I'm about to tell. But it's still good to be reminded of these stories. Abraham was a man who followed God. And God at one point had promised Abraham. He had promised Abraham that Abraham would be the father of a great nation. And that he would have many descendants. In fact, God took Abraham out side one time, and he said, Abraham, look up at the stars. You see the amount of stars that are in the sky. And you can imagine in the middle of of the desert in the Middle East, no lights, no city lights or anything, how many stars Abraham could see. And God said, Abraham, I'm promising you that one day your descendants will outnumber these stars. Now that's a great promise that God gave Abraham, but Abraham and Sarah Sarah, they had a big issue. And the issue was, is that Abraham and Sarah were unable to have a child. And I don't know much about creating nations and having descendants that outnumber the stars. But it seems to me that having a child would be a big part of having that promise be fulfilled. And so Abraham and Sarah, they wrestled with this for a long time. In fact, they... They understood God's promise and what God had said, but it turned out that they got to the point that they were way past the age where they would physically be able to have a child, and they still had no child of their own. In fact, God came back to Abraham, the Bible says, when Abraham was pretty old, and God said, you know, Abraham, I haven't forgotten my promise to you. This is in Genesis chapter 17, if you want to look it up. He said, I haven't forgotten my promise to you, in fact, I'm still going to give you a son." and you know what Abraham did? He just laughed. He said, all right. I'm not sure I believe you because I'm really old and, and my, my wife, Sarah, you know, she's, she's older as well. And it's just not even physically possible. But wouldn't you know that God was true to his promise? And he gave Abraham and Sarah a son even in their old age. And Abraham named his son Isaac, and Isaac grew up. And then in Genesis chapter 22, God comes back to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, I want you to take him to a mountainous region called Moriah, and I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac as an offering to me. As you can imagine how Abraham must have felt, right? All of these years waiting for this child, and he has one child. And here's this promise that his descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky. And so Abraham, now this same God who did this miraculous thing in giving Abraham and Sarah this, this child when they never should have been able to have children, this God that did this amazing thing for them, now is asking them to sacrifice that child as an offering to him. It sounds horrific, it sounds uh, brutal, it sounds unfair. But Abraham gets everything that he needs together, and he and Isaac, along with some servants, they head off towards the mountains. And when they get to the base of the mountains, Abraham says to his servants, you wait here. And Isaac puts the the wood, and they have the embers for the fire uh, together. And as they're walking, Isaac says to his dad, this had to be such a difficult question, Isaac says to his dad, Dad, I see that we have wood for the fire. I see that we have wood and I see that we have embers that that are holding the fire for us. But where's the sacrifice? And I don't know if Abraham could look at his son, but all he said was, Isaac, God will provide the sacrifice. They get up to the mountain and Abraham builds the altar and spreads out the sticks on top of the altar. Lays his son out on the altar. And the Bible says that just before Abraham is about to sacrifice his son, God's voice comes through and he says, Abraham, stop. Stop. Now I know, now I know that you love me and you will withhold nothing from me. Abraham looked and there was a ram caught in a bush just by them. And sure enough, God provided another sacrifice. So Abraham got Isaac off of the altar and he put the ram on it, and Isaac and Abraham together sacrificed this ram uh, to the Lord. You know, God kept his promise to Abraham, and through Isaac, Abraham became the father of a great nation, the Israelites. And a number of years later, another story happened. A number of years later, you remember that the Israelites became a group of a people group, and that people group was enslaved by the Egyptians for, for hundreds of years. And so at one point, God, he called um, Charlton Heston to lead his, his, the Israelites out of Egypt. He called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And he took them across the desert, and Moses took took the Israelites as far as God allowed him to take them. He he took them to the edge of what was called the Promised Land, and that was the land that God was going to give his people. And Moses passed away when they got to the edge of the Promised Land, and a man named Joshua took over. This is hundreds of years after the Abraham and Isaac story. A man named Joshua took over. The first city in the Promised Land that they had to conquer was a heavily fortified city called Jericho. And Joshua knew that God had given them this city, and they were going to attack it. But, and so he was getting the troops ready. And while he was getting the troops ready, Joshua sent two spies into Jericho, into Jericho to see what was going on. Well, while the spies were in the city, someone tipped off the king of Jericho that they were there. The spies needed a place to hide, and there was this woman named Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute, the Bible says. In fact, Jericho was really a center of idol worship. There was a goddess called Ashtaroth, and there was a big temple in Jericho to that goddess. And there's really no doubt that that Rahab's work, her position, was related to the pagan worship and things that would go on at that temple. So here she was, this very unlikely sort of heroine that would help these Israelite spies that are spying on her city, but she takes them in. And when the king of Jericho comes looking for these spies, she hides them on her roof. And then helps them escape. And before the spies escape, they ask her, why are you doing this? And Rahab says to them, I have heard what your God has done, bringing you out of Egypt, parting the Red Sea, leading you through the desert. And I know, I know that the God of the Israelites is the one true God. you know, James, as he talked to these people and he asked them this question, he said to them, he said to them, what good is it, what good is it if you say you believe something, but yet you don't do it? What good is it if, if you get together as the church, what good is it if you get together as brothers and sisters in Christ, and some of you are needy, and the, and, and the rest don't provide for those needs? What good is that? What good is it to say you have faith, but yet you're unwilling to, to, to act on it? In fact, James says, You want to know what faith in action looks like? You want to know what it looks like to put the two together? There's really two people you should look at. And this is what he says in verse uh, 17. He says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by, by my works. You believe that God is one? you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? This is what he says as an example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And he says, You want to know what this looks like? to have faith and works come together, here's what it looks like. It looks like when Abraham was willing to take what he valued and treasured the most and risk it because God asked him to, that there was nothing that he was willing to withhold from God, that everything that he had, including his most prized possession, was God's. That's what it looks like. He said, you want to know what else it looks like? It looks like when Rahab the prostitute put her life at risk and put her family's life at risk because she believed that the God of the Israelites was the one true God. That's what it looks like. It looks like being willing to give up everything that you have and everything that you treasure for Him, and it it looks like being willing to risk everything for Him. It's interesting to me that we live in a culture that still largely believes in God. No matter what we see out there, no matter what, Uh, television may say, most people that live in this country and live in this culture believe in God. Now, the version of that God that they believe in, I suppose we could talk about all day, but the the general principle is true. Whether it's Gallup or the Pew Research Center or the Barna Group, the number that comes back when they ask people in our culture, do you believe in God, is high, like 85 or 90 percent. Most people say they believe in God. But I don't think we have to argue very long uh, to determine that even though we live in a culture where most people say they believe in God, we also live in a culture that is increasingly going the opposite direction from what God would tell us to do. There is a growing divide in the culture that we live in between what God, between belief in God and doing what it is that God has asked us to do in his word. That divide keeps growing larger and larger and the question is why is that why is this happening if it bothers us so much when other people don't live consistent lives then why in our world and why in our culture and why even in the church is there a growing divide between belief in god and doing what it is that god has asked us to do i think there might i think there's really two reasons The first is we look at what God has asked us to do, and the cost just seems too high. We look at what God has asked us to do, and the cost just seems too high to us. In order to live the life that God has asked us to live, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something of our time. Time that we would put to other things will now put to the things that God has asked us to do even us being here together this morning i know that it's a it's a it's a cost of time that there's other things that we could choose to do but to follow god and do what it is that he asks us to do it takes our time and for some of us that's just too big of a price to pay for some of us we just want to do what we want to do we just want to be in control of of our lives We want to be able to decide uh, what it is that we do and what it is that we don't do. And we don't want anyone else, uh, including God, telling us what it is that we should be doing or shouldn't be doing. The price of giving that up and giving that over to God and trusting him that what he's asking us to do is best for us, that's too big of a price to pay. And many of us are just unwilling to pay it. For some of us, the reason that there's an inconsistency uh, between what God asks us to do and what we're willing to do uh, is, is it comes down to, to money. If we follow what God wants us to do, then we have to handle our resources differently, and it's just too big of a price to pay. There may be plenty of people in need, but you know the stock market's really been tanking this year, and so we'll have to replenish that first before we get on to helping others. And in order for us to do what God asks us to do, it requires us to give of our time and give up our selfish ambitions and give of our resources. And for some of us, it's just too big of a cost to pay. We don't want to be like Abraham. We don't want to have to potentially sacrifice the things that are most important to us. And we don't want to be like Rahab. We really don't want to risk everything that we have for the sake of of God. We want to hold some of that back. And that and, in fact, I think for many of us the cost that's too big to pay to go out into this world and to really live the life that God is calling us to live is just the fact that other people are going to think we're foolish. The fact that Christians are a bunch of intolerant back-minded ignorant people in our world and we don't want to be associated with that is enough for us sometimes to go out into the world and not live the life that christ has called us to it's too big of a price to pay we don't want to be known as intolerant and kind of behind the times and foolish we don't want to be known that way and to have other people think that about us would be too big of a price to pay And so we just don't do it. And there's a growing inconsistency between what God asks us to do and what we're willing to do. And I think that uh, that the second reason why why there's this growing inconsistency between our belief in God and how we act is, one, it's just too big of a cost to pay, we think. And the second reason why is that we forget the price that God paid on our behalf. We think that it's too big of a price to pay to go out and do what God is asking us to do. But we also forget the price that God has paid on our behalf. You know, we forget, we forget that God took his only son. Just in the same way that he asked Abraham to take his only son and put him up on that altar. God has taken his only son. And put him up on the cross. But this time there was no other sacrifice given. No other sacrifice provided. That was the sacrifice that needed to take place for the, for the result of my sin and your sin. And we forget the price that God has paid on our behalf. That he did not withhold his son from us, but he took his son, his only son, his most prized possession, the thing that Abraham didn't want to have to sacrifice, the thing that God uh, saved Ab- Abraham from trying, having to sacrifice, and he put him up on that cross, and for my benefit and your benefit, for the salvation of our sins, for grace and mercy and love, God allowed that sacrifice to take place. That we might experience his forgiveness and his grace And mercy in a very real and powerful way. And I think when we go out into this world and we don't live the way God is calling us to live. When we say to God, I know what you say about how I'm supposed to handle my resources. But I'm going to do it the way that I want when we say to God, listen, I know everything that you say about how I am to handle relationships. But the world's different now. And so I'm going to do things the way that that I want. I know everything you say, God, about about how I should act and how I should should talk and and that I should share your love with other people. I know all about that, but it's just, just, I, I just don't know how to do it. The price is too big. I think we forget the price that God has paid on our behalf. If we remember what God has sacrificed to us and the price he paid, doing what he's asking us to do, I think, becomes easier. Because the cost that he's asking us to pay is so much less than he was willing to pay himself. James is telling us, he's saying, listen, faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. Faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. If your faith is not backed up by the way that you live, if you say that you believe one thing and you go out and you do another, it doesn't work. In fact, the word James uses is it's useless. But the opposite is also true. A belief and a faith that is backed by action and works is absolutely a powerful thing. Imagine if we as followers of Jesus Christ could really do this. Imagine if we at the church could really do this. Imagine if, if we could be the kind of people, not just us in this room, but, but the followers of Christ in general, the people that believe in God in this nation, if we could come together and if we could have our beliefs and our actions come together in a very real and tangible way, if we really walked out of this place and did what God asked us to do, it would be a powerful Testimony to this world around us of a good and gracious and loving and merciful God. When our beliefs and our actions come together, it is a powerful thing. Because faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. But faith that is backed by works is absolutely powerful. I came across an article that was written in the New York Times a couple of years ago. And it was written by a man named Nicholas Kristoff. And he's a man that, that for the New York Times, he's gone around the world and he's, he's uh, done reports on poverty and genocide and all of sort of those um, horrible events that happen around the world. And this is what he said in 2011 in the New York Times. He started off by saying, he said, I know that sometimes Christian leaders and teachers have been a bit hypocritical in how they've behaved. And then this is what he writes. Even so, in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, I've seen many other Christians, evangelicals are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their income to charity. More important, they're willing to go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, rape, human trafficking, and genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics who truly live out their faith. He writes, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. Faith without works doesn't work, but faith that's backed by works is a powerful thing. Imagine if we as followers of Jesus Christ could go out and show the love and the mercy and the selflessness that he calls us to. And so we have to ask ourselves in our own lives, where does the disconnect lie? In your life, in my life, where are the places that I say that I believe in Jesus? I say that I have faith. But when I walk out the door, when I walk out the door, I live differently. Where are those places where there's a disconnect in my life where the things that I value I withhold from God or, the, or there's things that I'm not willing to risk for him? Where are those places in my life where there is a disconnect between what I believe and what I do? And I would hope this morning would be a morning that we would come together and we would say before God, we would say to him, listen, God, today is the day that we want to reaffirm that not only do we want to be people who believe the right thing, but God, we want to be people who do the right thing. And none of us are perfect in this. All of us need to be empowered by God's spirit to live the life that he's called us to live. But all of us know of places in our lives, some places people can see and some places people can't see. where we are not living the way that God has called us to live. And the cost that God has paid on our behalf in giving of His only Son, Jesus Christ on that cross, is such a great price, my prayer for us today is that it would compel us to live the way that God has called us to live, that we would trust in him and be filled with his spirit and be willing to go and do what it is that he's asking us to do, even when it's difficult, even when it requires us to give up what we truly love, even when it requires us to put ourselves at risk, even if it requires us to have the people around us, our roommates, our friends, our family members, our coworkers, look at us and shake their heads. Even when it costs us that, that we would be willing to go and do what it is that God is asking us to do. I'm going to invite our our worship team to come back as we close this morning. You know, and as we do, I just want us to think about about one last thing. You know, I don't I don't watch a lot of, of car racing. Maybe you do. I make make enough uh, left-hand turns on my own. I don't really want to watch it for a couple hours on television. I don't know if you watch car racing, but I don't really watch a lot of it. But there's something that happens in a car race. Something that happens in a car race uh, that I want us to think about for just a second. Every so often, uh, in the middle of a NASCAR race or an F1 race or IndyCar race or whatever it is, the race cars, they pull into pit row and they stop. And a bunch of uniformed guys jump over a wall, and it's pretty impressive. In 15 or 16 seconds, they change four tires, they top off the gas, they make adjustments to the car, and away the driver goes, back into the race. And it's a pretty impressive thing that they're able to do in 15 or 16 seconds. But the key is, is that they go back into the race ready to do what it is that they need to do. Refueled, recharged, fresh tires, ready to go and run the race that they're supposed to run. It would be foolish for a driver to come into the pit row, come into the pit row, and then get all the fresh tires, get the gas tank topped off, get the adjustments made on the car, and then just stay there, and get out of the car and say, all right, we've done everything that we need to do. You know, sometimes that's the way that that we as followers of Jesus Christ, we treat our gatherings as Christians. The whole point of us getting together is so that we can come into this place and worship God and be refueled and recharged have fresh tires on so that we can go out and run this race that God is calling us to live that's the whole point of us getting together but too often what we do is we make the the gathering the race itself and we come into the gathering and we do all the things that we're supposed to do and then we just walk off and we say well that was, we did it we did everything we were supposed to do and we never get back out there and actually do the things that God is calling us to do We'll come in for about an hour and a half, an hour and 15 minutes, and then we'll walk out and we'll spend the next 166.5 or .75 hours in the week doing something totally different. Because we forget the race is not what happens in here, the race is what happens out there. And the whole point of us getting together is that we might be refueled, refilled, recharged by God's Spirit and the community of the saints as we gather together and encourage one another and exhort one another and help one another. The whole point is that we might be ready to go back out and live the life that God is calling us to live. And so where is it for you that there is a disconnect between what God is asking you to do and what you're doing? I know there's places in my life where I have to come before the Lord and say, God, I need your help here. To live this life that you've called me to live, I need your help. And maybe that's you this morning. We're going to spend the next few minutes singing again, and this is what I would encourage you to do. Maybe you're here this morning and you would like someone to pray with you about this. My wife and I will be up to the, off on the side here while we sing. We would love to pray with you about this or anything else. Please come and pray with us. Maybe this morning you would love to spend some time just between you and God. Maybe asking Him to forgive you for the places where belief and action haven't met up. Maybe, maybe just asking Him for His strength to help you live the life that He's calling you to live. And I'd encourage you as we sing these songs, you know, you're more than welcome to either sit in your chair and spend that time, close your eyes as we sing and spend that time, or you're more than welcome to come up front here and kneel at these altars and spend that time in God's presence to say, God, help me to live this life that you're calling me to. live." God, we thank you for this time that we have together this morning to hear from your word. God, every time we're reminded that that our belief and our actions need to match up, Lord, it's a convicting thing because for all of us there are places in our lives where even though we say we believe in you and even though we follow you, there are places where we know that we are not living it out the way you called us to. God, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've made on our behalf with your son. Lord, you have not called us to pay a price that you yourself were not willing to pay. And so, Lord, would we be the kind of people who are willing to give everything, sacrifice everything for your sake and for your glory and for your kingdom? Would you help us by your spirit to live consistent lives? And as as we spend this time in your presence today, would your Holy Spirit move and would you work? pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing and please come forward and let's spend time in the presence of our God together.